Good morning. Where were you all last week? I'm sitting in here and I turn around and I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, something's wrong. But we had coffee, man. Woo! Anyway, good to see you all. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between our herdsmen and your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Genesis 13, 8. So if you're following along in the bulletin bulletin, that's not right. So look at the insert. This afternoon at 4, uh, there's a concert at Lapeer East High School. Uh, that will be replacing our evening service. Choir rehearsal to be announced. I'm announcing that right now. There is a choir rehearsal immediately following the morning worship service. So that's today, right up here. Christmas program is scheduled for Sunday, December the 22nd. Do we have a time? Do we have, I don't know if we've talked about it. Is it three or seven? <laughs> um, that's to be announced. Be it's coming up. On that day. Very soon, I'll let you know. Um, scheduling issues with the uh, Creek Choir, um, so they'll not, they'll not be here this year. Um, Thornville Baptist Church Choir will perform along with many specials. Following the program, as usual, we'll have refreshments in the Fellowship Hall, so plan on uh, bringing some things to share. Invite your friends and neighbors. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's contact number for the prayer chain, and a thank you for your giving. I have a note from Dean Birch. This is a, this is a, I take it this is a printout from a text. Yes. Um, it says, hi, Phil. This came to Phil. Hi, Phil. This is Dean Birch. I received an envelope in the mail. Phil, I really don't know what to say. I'm overwhelmed by the kindness shown to you, to, to me, by you, the deacons, and the folks at Thornville. Well, the financial gift means a lot to us. The love that it expresses means even more. Thank you so much for your role in this, and please pass along my most sincere thanks to my brothers and sisters at the church. May our God richly bless and smile upon you. So thank you so much. Uh, oh, how about that? Somebody left me another note. I was just getting to this one. Violet Thick, who is, you know, Sandy, Sandy's mom, fell yesterday, I think it was, and broke her hip. So we all know that as uh, we get into our advanced years, that can be a, a big problem. So keep her in your prayers. Also, I wanted to thank the folks that came and made our church beautiful. And let me, I'll miss somebody, but I think it was Pam and Dale and Doc, was it Doc, and Phil and Ida, and who else? And George and Sheila. Thank you very much. All right, what else have I forgotten? Our scripture for meditation this morning is from Joshua, the 24th chapter. Read verses 14 through 27. 
let, let me interrupt. So, so our script, our meditation is which? Sorry for the confusion. Jonah 2, 1 to 10. Jonah 2, 1 to 10. That's way off. <laughs> That's my fault, I they, guess. They both start with a J. That's <laughs> my problem. Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service. George, can I ask you again? Thanks. Father, we're privileged to be able to meet in your house today, and we thank you so much for your love and watch care over us. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this time. Allow us, Father, that we might hear and understand what your word declares. We pray that those who are here that need your, your love and your grace upon them, we, we pray, Father, that they would open their hearts to you this day. Father, we seek that you would bless your word to our hearts as Christians, that we would hear your word and therefore respond in kind as to your great grace and mercy upon us. We ask, Father, that you give Pastor Luke uh, the grace and strength to be able to do what he needs to do to help us grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
bless this day. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we ask this. Take your red hymnal, your Trinity hymnal this morning and turn to number 677, 677 in the red Trinity. So 677 in the red. She would, it's oh, okay. okay. <laughs> then in the red hymnal, I like 327 because it's practically the entire story of Christ. Not all of it, a lot. Wonderful. Okay, 327.
Uh, scripture reading this morning is Genesis, the 13th chapter, and we'll be reading 1 through 13. Genesis 13, 1 through 13. You'll stand with us, we'll read together. I first have a correction to make in the announcements. Uh, Doc was not here for the uh, Christmas decorations. Shame on him. I am certainly glad that I did not swear by the Christmas decorations that I would be here. And if you came to Sunday school, you would know just what that meant. But you helped hang the wreaths. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another yeah, day. Another day. And I really like that, Sheila. So... Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to, a, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. May the Lord bless his reading and hearing of his word. <clears throat> we take your brown hymnals this time and turn to number 365, 365 in the brown.
Our study text this morning is found in the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Primarily studying verse one. <clears throat> it is Christmas in the Glen once more. And our little church nestled in the hills of Metamora, Michigan, is coming alive with the festive, festive decorations that uh, show the season. Holly, ivy, red, green, bedeck the halls, the sills, even the doors. And we are reminded that something stupendous and beautiful occurred a little more than 2,000 years ago, which reaches with its tentacles of hope to our own day and blesses us today as it did the recipients of long ago. Shepherds in the little town of Bethlehem, just a stone's throw from Jerusalem's capital, were tending to their sheep at night when suddenly and without warning, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. He is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 9 and following. In haste, they made their way to the stable indicated by this angelic messenger. We read, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Luke chapter 2, verse 16 and following. Okay, what was happening here? Why were the shepherds so amazed, so awestruck, so full of praise to God? Was this a new revelation? Was this never broached before in their Jewish scriptures? Had their rabbis never taught them anything about God's coming salvation? Had not the prophet Micah foretold some 730 years earlier, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5 verse 2. Now 700 plus years 
That's a long time to wait. Generations came and went. Wars were fought and wars were lost. Israel, as in ancient times, was once again subservient to a foreign power. Rome ruled, and they were under Roman rule. The heel of Rome was hard on them. Yet, brethren, delay, delay is a non-entity with God. Time is not his master. Instead, he is the master of time. And of all of the events of history. This is no less the case here on Shepherd's Hill just outside of Bethlehem. Paul explains. But when the time had fully come. God sent his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights. Of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Now the implementation was new. Yes, a virgin conceived and brought forth a son. But the concept was old, as old as Isaiah 7, verse 14. No older still, 50 years older. When Jonah, encapsulated in the belly of a great fish, for his willful rebellion to God, and as good as dead, cried out, salvation is from the Lord. And we are told, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, Jonah 2 verse 10. And the man doomed to die was given life instead. Unto you a Savior is born. This brings up then some truths about salvation. The salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah said. Well, in what ways is salvation of the Lord? Let me suggest some ways. Firstly, It is God alone who saves. People speak of the plan of salvation. And indeed there is a plan. But alas it is not the plan most people envision. Sinners tend to think that they are not so much the recipients of God's plan of salvation. But more his partner in the plan. We hear statements like, well, God has done all that he can do to save you. Now you must do your part. By which they mean that you must accept Christ as Savior. God gives the Savior, but you have to accept him as such. And if you're not saved, then it is because you have rejected the Savior. And I'll have more to say on that later. The origin of God's salvation demonstrates how erroneous this view of God's plan is. I mentioned earlier that time is not something appropriate in binding God. 
Time is a creature limitation. You and I had a beginning. God had no beginning. So when and where was the plan of salvation conceived? Who were the participants? Who were the principals involved? Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Titus 1, verses 1 through 3. Whatever else this verse teaches us, it states that God's promise of salvation preceded time. And as we read in Galatians 4, verse 4, came to light in the fullness of time when Mary gave birth to the Savior. So as far as God's plan, you were not there. I was not there. No one was there except God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simply put, the plan of salvation, if such language has any meaning, was conceived without human input and counsel. Indeed, it does not, the Bible say, you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding. Isaiah 40, verses 9 and following. And the answer to all these questions is that no one is God's counselor. Not then, not now, not ever. The plan of salvation was solely that of God, and it preceded time. Paul puts it this way, God who has saved us, and called us to a holy, holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I'm still reading scripture. Let me read it again. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. When Jonah confessed, salvation is of the Lord, 
he surely admitted that the plan of salvation was solely and exclusively God's design. Secondly, God alone implemented the plan. I mean, what good is a plan without implementation? Is a plan really a plan unless there is follow-through from drawing board to completion? Isn't it one of the deficiencies of the plans of men that oftentimes what is envisioned cannot or is not brought to fruition because of unforeseen variables? Obstacles may arise which were not anticipated. The plan was too costly. The money was scarce. Those in authority were too cautious, and so the plan was scrapped. The timing wasn't right. There was an economic downturn. War broke out. There was unrest in the stock market. All these things caused men to adjust their plans or forsake them altogether. They're variables that no one can control. Solomon writes it this way in Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You see what he's saying? Men fail in the implementation of their plans because... They are not sovereign over all of the variables which may come against them to frustrate their plans. And chief among these is God's own will, which men's plans often oppose. I may read it for you from Isaiah 29. The Lord says, These people come near to me, with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who Go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do their work in darkness and think, ah, who sees us? Who will know? Isaiah 29, verse 13 and following. Concerning the plan of salvation, you can be sure that if man were part of the implementation, he would have seen to it that he had a cushy part to play so that he could boast. That still goes on. We want to save ourselves, and we resist the idea that God alone saves. We resist the idea that we are recipients of grace and recipients of mercy, which none of us deserve, and which none of us can earn by our own merit. But I want to say this morning that the implementation is as much a part of eternity past 
as the plan of salvation itself. Let me suggest four elements. Number one, God's plan called for a sinless Savior. Peter tells us that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20. So Jesus, God's Son, as Savior, was not an afterthought with God. He was chosen before man was made. Before man made his debut on, debut on the earth. Now let me tell you, that's planning. That's really planning. To create a universe and then create the outcomes of all of these things before the people that are involved in it are even created. <coughs> Secondly, God's plan called for an atoning savior. A stand-in savior. One whose death and shed blood could pay for sin. John described Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Revelation 13 verse 8. Not an afterthought with God. It's put right there in the plan. Thirdly, God's plan called for a for recipients among men who were certain to benefit from God's salvation. We read in him in Christ Jesus, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we might <clears throat> that we would be the first to hope in Christ and might be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. Chosen, predestined according to God's plan. And fourthly, God's plan called for personal salvation. By name, that is. That's personal. It means it was on purpose. It was not by chance. John delineates between those of Satan's kingdoms whose names were not written in the book of life from the creation of the world, Revelation 17, verse 8, which implies, of course, that God's people and their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. Now that's planning. The glory of God's plan is this. That you and I are not an afterthought with God. Isaiah puts it this way. Remember this. Fix it in the mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I'm God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. And I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. 
What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion and my splendor to Israel. Isaiah 46, verse 8 and following. And Jesus in the New Covenant puts it this way. He said to his disciples, you did not choose me. But I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit and the fruit that will last. John 15 verse 16. Earlier Jesus had taught the crowd at Capernaum. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6 verse 65. Thirdly, God alone sustains his people. Poor Jonah. (laughs) He is in a bad way. In his own words, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Did I read that right? From inside the fish? Yeah, from inside the fish. Well, what's he doing there? God has hurled him into the deep, and the monster has swallowed him alive, but he thinks he's a goner. Why has this occurred? Let me read it for you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But... Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. What is this? Well, it is Jonah, a prophet, who is refusing to prophesy. He is a preacher of the good news who does not want the hated Ninevites to hear the good news. He is a man commanded by God who balks at God's command and boards a ship in the opposite direction so that he can, and It says right here in the scripture, so that he can flee from the Lord. Verse 
In conclusion, Jonah is a child of God in rebellion against God. God said, go. Jonah said, no. And he not only protested, he did something about it. He ran fast and hard in the opposite direction. Jonah is a child of God. He is a prophet of God. But he is one angry with God. He says he's angry with God in the fourth chapter, verse 9. He's even (laughs) willing to die for his cause. And he says that too in chapter 4, verse 3. Just take my life, Lord. I'm not going to do it. But just a few short days before when he was in the belly of the fish, he said, let me read it for you. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. When he exclaimed to God that he wanted to die, I think that was his anger speaking. Aren't you glad that God does not respond to our anger, to our sinful prayers? My point here is that if ever there were a believer who deserved to be abandoned by God, it was Jonah. Few people in the Bible are so blatant, so bold-faced, so rebellious, to the clear command of God, than Jonah's rejection of his commission and the justification he gave for it. God said, do you have a right to be? I do have a right to be angry with you. He protested. The whole idea that we are saved by God's grace, but thereafter are kept by our own goodness, or our own obedience is bogus. Man does not make himself spiritually alive, and he cannot keep himself alive. We need grace to take the first step towards Jesus, and we need grace to take every step thereafter till we reach glory. Grace cannot be stockpiled. It is a daily necessity, a daily supply that must come from God. It's like the manna in the wilderness. The ancient people of God received enough for the day, but only for the day. And if they tried to store the manna for another day, it rotted and was uneatable on the next day. Our Lord has taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because one must feed on Christ the living bread every day to maintain spiritual vitality. You can't stockpile this. Many years ago, the automobile companies initiated 
changes to their assembly lines many years ago. These companies had initiated what they called on-time delivery of the car parts. By which I mean, they saved themselves the expenses of stockpiling large inventories, warehouses full of places all around the country where the parts were stored. How did they do this? Well, when a red car was coming down the assembly line, a red door was in the pipeline to arrive at just the right moment when the worker needed to bolt it onto the red car. If the door was the wrong collar, oh wow, what a mess. The line had to be halted. Everyone scrambled to rectify the problem. Can't put this black door on this red car. May I say that God's grace for living the Christian life is always on time. It is never early. It is never late. And it is never a mix-up. Jonah's anger had landed him in the depth of the sea in the belly of a sea monster. Yet he was given the grace to pray to the God from whom he was fleeing. Think about that. In wonder of wonder, God commanded the fish and out came Jonah, a little worse for wear, but alive and set back on track to do for God what he had been commanded to do. Brethren, salvation is of the Lord. God sustains us even when we are faithless and disobedient and unruly, rebellious children. Listen to the song of Jonah. What's his song? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2, verse 8 and 9. And only God gives both saving and sustaining grace. Your idol can't do that for you. But God's grace can do it. For you. What then is the outworking of the truth that salvation <clears throat> is of the Lord? What are some conclusions? Well, let me suggest well, number one that any poor it means that any poor sinner can be the subject of saving grace. Any poor sinner. Salvation being of the Lord means that it is not open to purchase, nor bribery, nor inheritance, nor reward, nor bargaining, nor bidding. No, none of these things. It is solely dependent upon the will of God himself, by himself, without regard to your station in life. When I was growing up... um, and when I was off to school at Moody, 
we used to do mission work down on uh, some of the worst sections of Chicago. And sometimes we would hear people from some of the churches that went along to help doing mission work and testimony and so forth. And they would make a statement, something to the effect that these people are so wicked in their lifestyle, they're unsavable. <laughs> Even as, I st as a student, I thought, there's something wrong with that statement. So wicked, they're unsavable. Somebody is misinterpreting what wickedness is, and when they look in the mirror at themselves, I'm thinking they're not thinking that they were in that same category. Are there people so wicked that they are unsavable? This is utterly foreign to the way our society should view things. Salvation is solely dependent upon the will of God himself, by himself, without regard to your station in life. You might be so wicked, and you think you're unsavable, but you've not put God into the mix. It is utterly foreign to the way our society views things. We think to the victor belongs the spoil, and somehow sinners think they will be the victors. We're not that bad. They think they will win heaven if they just try hard enough to be good enough. The expression, well, you know, everyone has his price. And so people bring this mentality to God. God, what will it take for you uh, to reserve a spot for me in heaven? I mean, everyone has his price. They might not say it quite, quite that way, but that's what they're thinking. Luke 10, verse 25, the Pharisee said it this way, What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, it's a matter of do. I don't know what to do, but if you tell me what to do, I, sure I can do it. And when I do it, I will inherit eternal life. It's just a matter of ignorance, not of incapability. Tell me, and I'll do it. Simple. Do you know that this concept is so insulting to God? It's actually blasphemous to think that God's favor can be bargained for. That God is no better than the money grubbers who paddle their services to the highest bidder. This is a sin of idolatry to which Jonah referred. Men shape God in their own wicked image. Sinners would take the bribe and run with it. They would throw open the gates of heaven and say, Come, come one, come all. 
But only if you drop your gold coins in the little treasure chest by the gate. This is because greed is part of their nature. They value material wealth at the expense of righteousness. But Solomon says of God, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or impartiality or bribery. Ooh. Second Chronicles 19, verse 7. Or again, a wicked man, a wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the course of justice. Proverbs 17, verse 23. So what this means is that God would have to be both wicked and unjust to accept a payment from you to enter heaven. Justice demands hell for everyone who opposes God in thought or deed. The writer Hebrews says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think A man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, 26 and following. What he's saying, it's an insult to try... To buy what God's grace or gift supplies. Station in life means nothing. How much money you have in the bank means nothing. How influential you are with your contemporaries means nothing. How smart, how intellectual means nothing. How connected you are to people in high places means nothing. God's grace has blinded one's eyes to all of these things. God is superior to all of these things. He is not impressed by these things. Paul told the Athenians, who were Greeks, of course they were, who prided themselves in all of these things, here's what he told them. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself Gives all men life and breath and everything else. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. And a little different tack is taken by Eliphaz 
In the book of Job, he asks the question, Can a man be of benefit to God? Think about that. Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? I'm still reading scripture. What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Job 22, verse 2 and 3. How can you add anything to perfection? Think about it. All the pride of man, all of his strongholds, all of his self-help methodology, all of his trust in his own ingenuity is worthless if salvation is of the Lord. The poor are as savable as the rich, the ignorant as savable as the wise, the nobodies of society as well as the somebodies. And God is intent on on this. Paul writes, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, Let him who boast, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following. Any sinner, all sinners, if they're going to be saved, must receive God's grace. Secondly, get this basic truth right. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the basic truth. You get that right, and all else will be right. But get it wrong, and you will be wrong everywhere else. If you truly believe that salvation is of the Lord, then of necessity you will be sound in the faith. Every heresy, every quirky doctrine of men, every wrong assumption in religion, every misguided spiritual thought, every effort is rooted in wrong understanding of God and his salvation. But conversely, every right thought, every happy thought, every peaceful notion, every comfort in God flows from the firm affirmation that salvation is of the Lord. If you believe this, you will not be arrogant. You will not be proud. You will not be smug. You will not be know-it-all. You will not look down on your brethren. 
nor think it your task to set everyone straight. You will fail to be you will not fail to be thankful and appreciative and to live life in humble gratitude before God. The glory is God's, and you wish it to be that way. Again, you will not take sin lightly. You will not see holiness as an unobtainable and therefore useless goal, no matter how often you fail. Your dependence on God's grace to save you will Look to God's grace to conform you to the image of the Savior, Jesus. Again, if you believe that salvation is of the Lord, your fears will be laid to rest. You will know that your salvation does not depend upon your fortitude, but on God's faithfulness. I write, Isaiah writes it this way. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26, the first four verses. Get this doctrine of salvation right, that salvation is of the Lord, and all else will fall into place. Then I have to say that if salvation is of the Lord, then damnation is of yourself. Here's what your earning power nets you. You cannot buy heaven, but you have plenty to buy hell. Like Adam and Eve of old, you have believed the lie of Satan that you can be your own God and need not listen to any command of the Creator. That's where people are today. Yet even in such deadness towards God, even in such unbelief, God comes to us as to Israel of old and pleads. He pleads. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. I put it this way. Every person in hell today, every person in hell today is there of their own doing. The blame cannot be laid at God's feet, but squarely on their own shoulders. They committed spiritual suicide. They have killed themselves by following the voice of the prince of darkness. And the apostle John warns us, You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 3 verse 15. 
And as surely as salvation is of the Lord, murder is of the one whom Jesus labeled a murderer from the beginning. He was referring to Satan. You listen to him and you die, as did Adam and Eve. If you listen to God, you'll live. Isaiah writes it this way, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. To our God, he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 7 and 8. People who are stubborn, their stubbornness will be their downfall. That stubbornness is from the pit of hell. It has been the coffin of many a soul. We read it for you, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. People doing that to themselves. So God says turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? There's a way out. It's a way of forgiveness. There's a way of restoration. There's a way of joy. There's a way to live other than being stubborn and fighting God all the way. You can surrender. You don't have to be a child of the evil one whose destiny is set because of his evil. Oh, Lord, grant us faith and repentance. It's not our normal thing. We think too well of ourselves. We do. We think, I can do that. My problem is just ignorance. Just tell me what to do and I can do it. Can't blame me for being ignorant, but if you just tell me, I, I know I can pull this off. That's the way we think. We don't know that we are dead and decayed spiritually, deprived of any grace, any love for the Lord God of heaven and earth. We think we're okay with God. And we begin to justify ourselves because we say, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I've never stolen anything. And on we go down our little list of things. And one little verse in the Bible, the soul that sins shall die, seems to elude our thinking. How many sins does it take for me to die? The soul that sins shall die. 
So we need a savior. We need someone who will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our sins. And Lord, you're that savior. There is none else. Help us to look beyond ourselves. Help us to look into the eyes of God. And to be thankful at this time of the year in particular for the sacrifice of your beloved son who came to save sinners, to draw us out of the kingdom of the darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. And you do that for your own glory and our good. Thank you so much. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 378. Three seven eight. Let's stand.
announcement. <clears throat> Pastor asked me to read a little bit about the composer Handel. Um, and uh, as we were headed possibly this evening, if you're going to go to it, to the concert of uh, Handel's Messiah. Uh, just so you know, this year marks 250 years since he passed away. Uh, and he died at age 64 in 1749. <clears throat> George Friedrich Handel's Messiah was originally an Easter offering. It burst onto the stage of the music hall in Dublin on April 13, 1742. The audience swelled to a record 700 as ladies had heeded pleas by management to wear dresses without hoops in order to make room for more company. Handel's superstar status was not the only draw, but many also came to glimpse the famous contralto Susanna Cyber. The men and women in attendance sat mesmerized for the moment, from the moment the tenor followed the mournful string overture with his piercing opening line, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, with saith your God. Soloists alternated with wave upon wave of chorus until the near midway point, Cyber intoned. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So moved was the Reverend Patrick Delaney that he leapt to his feet and cried out, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven thee. Now, of course, Messiah is a fixture of the Christ Christmas season, and woe to the concert hall in the United States or Britain that fails to schedule the piece around the holidays, when, as well, CD sales and web downloads of the oratorio soar. Handel was born in Halle, Germany, into a religious, affluent household. His father, George Handel, a celebrated surgeon in northern Germany, wanted his son to study law. But an acquaintance, the Duke of Wessenfels, heard the prodigy, then barely 11 years old, playing the organ. The nobleman's recognition of the boy's genius likely influenced the doctor's decision to allow his son to become a musician. And by 18 years old, Handel had composed his first opera, Almira, initially performed in Hamburg in 1705. During the next five years, he was employed as a musician, composer, and conductor at the courts and churches in Rome, Rome, Florence, Naples, and Venice, as well as in Germany, where the Elector of Hanover, the future King George I of England, was briefly his patron. <clears throat> Amassing a fortune through his music and shrewd investments in London burgeoning stock and London's burgeoning, burgeoning stock market, sorry, Handel donated uh, to orphans, retired musicians, and the ill. He gave his portion of the Messiah's debut to a debtor's prison and a hospital in Dublin. A sense of humanity imbues his music as well, a point often made by conductors who compare Handel with Bach. But where Bach's oratorios exalted God, Handel was more concerned with the feeling of mortals. Even when the subject is of, of his work is religious, Handel is writing about the human response to the divine. Handel composed Messiah in an astounding interlude somewhere between three and four weeks in August and September of 1741. He would literally write from morning to night, um, says Sarah Bardwell of the Handel House Museum in London. The text was prepared in July by the prominent librettist Charles Jensen's and was intended for an Easter performance the following year. I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions as the subject excels every other subject, Jensen's wrote to a friend. Other Handel oratorios had strong plots, anchored by dramatic confrontations between leading characters, but Messiah offered the loosest of narratives. 
The first part prophesied the birth of Jesus Christ. The second exalted his sacrifice for humankind. And the final section heralded his resurrection. It took time for Messiah to find its niche as a Christmas favorite. There is so much fine Easter music, Bach's St. Matthew's Passion most especially, and so little great sacral music written for Christmas, said Cummings. But the whole first part of the Messiah is about the birth of Christ. By the early 19th century, performances of Messiah have become even stronger in the United States than in Britain. There is little doubt about Handel's own fondness for his work. His annual benefit concerts for his favorite charity, London's Foundling Hospital, a home for abandoned and orphaned children, always included the Messiah. And in 1759, when he was blind and in failing health, he insisted on attending the April 6th performance of the Messiah at the Theatre Royale in Covenant Garden. Eight days later, Handel died at home. His total estate was assessed at 20,000 pounds, which made him a millionaire by modern standards. He left the bulk of his fortune to charities and much of the remainder to friends and servants and his family in Germany. His one posthumous present to himself was a 600-pound monument for, at Westminster Abbey, his final resting place for British monarchs and their most accomplished subjects. Abroad, Handel's reputation that that, and that of his best-known composition only continued to grow. Mozart paid Handel the supreme compliment of reorchestrating the Messiah in 1789. Even Mozart, however, confessed himself to be humble in the face of Handel's genius. He insisted that any alteration to Handel's score should not be interpreted as an effort to improve the music. Uh, Handel knows better than any of us what will make an effect, Mozart said. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Just a little insight into the Messiah. I would say this to you, that we only get the Christmas version of it, and they skip to the end. The Hallelujah Chorus belongs at a different part of the Messiah. It takes quite a bit of time to listen to it. Uh, but I encourage you to, to do that. There's it's wonderful scripture put to music by one of the greatest composers that God has gifted us uh, in time so far. So that's all I have. Okay. So we have an opportunity today uh, over at Lapeer East at 4 o'clock. They are going to do excerpts of the Christmas portion of Handel's Messiah. And so I would encourage you to be able to attend that if you can. Uh, get there a little early, maybe 3.30 or so. And uh, we have three of our own people from this little church that are part of the chorus that will be bringing that music uh, at 4 o'clock over at Lapeer's. So hope you're encouraged. Uh, we ought not to forget these wonderful oratorials that were written by godly men who, whose words, I mean, they're just phenomenal. They, they took the scriptures and put the scriptures to music. You, you, you ain't going to do no more better than that, let me tell you. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. So hope to see you there today. We are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.